This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello. Thanks for being there. I'm here. I'm Giles Brandreth and welcome to another episode of Rosebud. Cue the music. I like our music, and I like our guests, an amazing range. If you enjoy today's show, do be sure to go back into the archive because we've now done dozens of episodes and we've had some completely remarkable people. Somebody in the street approached me the other day and said, oh, Miriam Margulies, I never, I never, oh my goodness. So there are some surprises to be had. The point is, there's a Rosebud archive. Feel free to dip into it. My guest today is the actor, writer and comedian David Mitchell. I've been lucky enough to know him since, I suppose, he was a teenager because he and my son Bennett are contemporaries and they were at Cambridge University together. And while at Cambridge, he became president of Footlights, uh, met his best friend then and future comedy partner, Rob Webb, who I'm also lucky enough to know. And the pair went on to have a successful TV comedy career as Mitchell and Webb. And I think, in fact, I appeared in one of their... Sketches once. Number Wang. That's what it was. It was called Number Wang. Anyway, and also the stars of the Channel 4 sitcom Peep Show, written by Sam Bain and Jesse Armstrong, who went on to write the smash hit drama Succession. David Mitchell is also known for being a team captain on the comedy panel show Would I Lie to You? And for playing, I think wonderfully, William Shakespeare in Ben Elton's Upstart Crow. David is also a writer and has recently written a book on English kings and queens called Unruly. It's a Sunday Times bestseller, and I'm not surprised. It's history made entertaining. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with a very funny and delightful man who's just recently become a father again. So I think he agreed to come and do this with me, Rosebud, to get out once more, having to change the nappies. Well, David, we always begin with the same question, and it's a very simple question. What is your earliest memory, your very first memory of your whole life? Well, what I think it is, is of feeding some chickens. Uh, But I don't know if it's properly a memory anymore. 
I think it might be the memory of a memory of a memory. I, th- I think I mentioned feeding these chickens at some point in my early childhood. And my parents were amazed that I had such an early memory. And so I, I noticed that moment of remembrance and sort of preserved it. So I was two and I was feeding some chickens and I mentioned that at some point in the following years and the gasps of my parents made me note it down. Why would you have been feeding chickens age two? Well, that was because my parents had stopped uh, managing hotels uh, because they had a small child, me, and my dad had started lecturing in hotel management at Oxford Polytechnic and my mum was not working and was looking after me in a rented cottage with no telephone and no central heating. Uh, and she was about, she was turning 30 around then and was, she talks about it as a deeply depressing time, stuck with a toddler in a house with no phone. But with chickens in the garden? And there were chickens in, in next door that they had to occasionally feed and I... I helped with that, and that that became imprinted on my brain. So who are or were your parents? What, what were their names? What were they like? Well, they are uh, Ian and Cathy Mitchell, and they, were, um, and they live in Oxford, and uh, they're lovely. And they, they used to, when, when I was very small, they managed hotels. What, you say managed hotels? Yeah. Great chains of hotels, like the JW Marriott Group, the Grosvenor House Hotel, <laughs> the one we're in, or, or more modest? No, they only did them one at a time. Ah. Uh, they were a husband and wife managing a hotel in the West Country at the very peak of Faulty Towers. So it was very comically uh, topical. Uh, what they were doing, I, I realised much later. They didn't own the hotels. They didn't. It's like being in a brewery and you have a landlord who is actually yeah. paid by the brewery. Except a lot posher than that, Giles. Oh. I mean, that's just, you know, goodness me. No, they got asked to the Maundy service in uh, in Salisbury when they were managing the White Hart in Salisbury. Oh. Uh, I've never really understood what that is. Something about giving away money. You know. it's a very, it was very important to the late Queen. Maundy uh. comes from mandatum. Uh, this rule I give to you, love your neighbour as yourself. That's why you're giving the money to the people. Yes, To show how keen on their neighbours all of the Plantagenets were. Well, that's that's, that's (laughs) the origin of it. They loved their neighbours. They would go round there with armies to see their neighbours, kill their neighbours with with kindness and also in other ways. So they managed hotels and gave it up. Why yes. did they give it up? Well, it wasn't very good if you had a small child because oh. you have to... You Basically, if you're running a hotel, you're working all the time, other people are at leisure. Actually, think of the fault is it had a child. That would have got an amusing yeah. element to the uh, to the series. Uh, well, yes. Well, of course, they're, they're doing a spin-off, aren't they? Yeah, um, which, this could be yeah, it. We're absolutely... Everyone's braced for it yeah. to be even better this time but around. You could be Basil Fawlty's love child because he'd be about your age now. It's not, not a bad idea. No. They, they yeah. need... They possibly need that help. Yeah. So, as a little boy, did you dress up? Did you play games? What were your favourite games? Yeah, I, I, I loved pretending to be other people. Uh, that was my um, main childhood activity, and I would dress up as... Uh, I went through phases. Captain Kirk... Well, not it wasn't actually Captain Kirk, it was Captain Kirk's boss, so that I could watch Star Trek and, and be in charge and sort of boss them around um they didn't always listen uh i dressed up as doctor who a lot using the airing covered as a tardis and the, the first thing i remember dressing up as 
for several years was this sort of 18th century king. I was obsessed with how in the 18th century men had sort of what looked to me like long socks up to their knees and buckled shoes. And I did my best to approximate that with uh, some, uh, you know, some sort of uh, aluminium foil buckles stuck to my shoes and long yellow socks so and i and i would walk around I, and i got at this time of year you can see me now i always got chapped hands um and i'd look at my hands and i'd think i've got the hand of an old tyrant and i'd love to pretend to be these great old rulers um just on my own having conversations with myself so i did a lot of dressing up um and much of it monarchical were you an, an old little boy were you a little bit like an old gentleman I, I, yes, I, th I think so. I'm, I'm comfortable, even now, I'm comfortable moving into middle age because the aesthetic has been with me for a long time. <laughs> I've, ne I've never felt like, I've never felt the allure of youth. Um, it's, and I, I feel it now because I realise the reason that, that youth is valued is because it's, it represents distance from death. But uh, other than that, the vibe, I, pr I prefer the elderly look. I think youth also is valued because youth can be beautiful. When you get to my age, anything yeah. under thirty looks attractive. Well, yes, obviously you look at fo I look at photographs of my younger self, and I think, yes, where did he go? Yeah, and he um, did. He didn't realise how great he looked. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How gorgeous you were! <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. You're, do you have a brother or sister after you? I do. My, I have a brother who's eight years younger than me, and uh, yes, so he he was six years uh, unborn at the point I was uh, feeding the chickens. Is that an expression? Six years unborn? Well, six years, uh, yes, waiting, unborn. Yeah. Unanticipated. Yeah. Was it here a surprise? Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't know. Did you? I've never asked that. No, right? exactly. I mean, yeah. One doesn't. Funnily <laughs> enough, something you never want to think about is your own conception, um, let alone that of your brothers and sisters. Okay, you're not helping with, with that. <laughs> yeah, you're giving the advice and making it impossible at the same time. So you're a little two-year-old boy. You've moved to Oxford and... Do you have friends who are your first friends? Can you remember your very first childhood friend? Oh, I, I my very first friends. I don't remember. I went first thing I did sort of educationally was went to a sort of playgroup thing, where I, as far as I can remember, all you did was sort of career up and down in a hall in pedal cars, and I don't remember any single other person who was at this playgroup, but they're. There must have been other children. I then went to a horrible school <laughs> for three years, and I had a, a few friends there. What was the horrible school? What was it? Was it was the? Um, it's quite a well-known. It's a girls' school called Headington School, hmm. which is still going, um, uh, despite my efforts to have it closed. Um, no, I don't. I don't um, have any ill will towards it now. All the people who were horrible there have left. But at the beginning of that school, they took boys for the first three years. Um, and I think against their better judgment. So they were, they were very, I was there in the late 70s. And I think, I think I got the, the I, I think I got the sort of last wave of a, perhaps an interwar education. The, the, the teachers were very old and very strict and very cross with me. And they, they made a huge, as, as if to ensure that there should be plenty of eating disorders higher up the school, they made a massive deal out of lunch. And you had to have everything. And there were a few things, and some things were fine, and there were a few things that would make me throw up. And then they would leave me with the sick down me for the rest of the day. 
you know, as a sort of to try and stop me doing that again. Wow. And then I, my parents would pick me up and I'd have sick down me. And they, they made representations to the school about this, but the school said this is very important to our system. Otherwise, you know, it'll all get out of hand. No one will eat their greens. It wasn't the greens that was the problem. It was the croquette potatoes. They were, there was some, a quality to their sliminess that, to this day, makes my stomach turn. It's quite a sophisticated school that offers croquette potatoes. Yeah, well, I think the thing is it was an odd combination of the sort of educational attitudes of the early part of the 20th century with the, the, the frozen food technologies of the 1970s. <laughs> So they were, these croquette potatoes were available to the caterers and they did whatever was recommended, warmed them up, brought the slime to the perfect uh, temperature and then I would attempt to eat them without being sick, unsuccessfully. So did you not have any friends at this school? Um, yes, I th- there was Master a nice little boy called Adam. I yeah. used to go around to his house. And your next school was what? New College School, uh, And that was a happier experience? That was great. Yeah, I loved that school. And what did um, you like most about it? Uh, they did well. They, they well. I was good at lessons. And they valued that. I was bad at sport. They didn't care. And they did school plays, and they made a big deal out of the school plays, and insisted that we wore a lot of makeup, uh, thick orange makeup with red dots in the eyes. Mm. And it was uh, they, they said if you didn't have the red dots in the eyes with the powerful lights in the school hall, then the audience simply wouldn't be able to see you. Uh, so that was great fun, having all this makeup plastered on you, ridiculous costume made by the mums, uh, not never by the dads at all. That was, you know, I'm not saying that was right, but that was the way it was. What was your first part? Can you remember? I was a dancing girl in a production of A Christmas Carol. Oh. Yeah. And it was for the, I was only on for the, um, it's Fezziwig, isn't it? Yes, it is. Just for that scene, I had to go on and do a dance. Um, Did you play any big parts at prep school? I did later. I played Rabbit in Winnie the Pooh. That was my um, my big moment. Well, Um, I think you've gone on doing that for... Do you you feel, of the Winnie the Pooh characters, which is the one that is you? Do you feel it is Rabbit? Well, I I was able to... I I was very comfortable playing Rabbit because I'd listened to Lionel Jeffries read the Winnie the Pooh stories out on tape. We used to listen to it in the car and he read them brilliantly. And he did, basically did Rabbit like a sort of impression of General Montgomery. And I just ripped off his whole performance. And I don't think the teachers in the school had heard Lionel Jeffries read Winnie the Pooh. And so they thought this was a wonderful piece of interpretation. And uh, they gave, I got the part. Do you not do any Shakespeare at prep school? No. Because that was when I gave my first Rosalind. I say my first, I've been doing it ever since. It was my only Rosalind. (laughs) But I was yeah. excited to do that because I had earlier my no, it was when I was in the Cubs. I played Alice, not in Wonderland, but uh, oh. Changing Guards of Buckingham Palace. Oh, uh, right, Alice, yeah. and I was that Alice. Um, and then I found it very difficult to get out of frocks. I felt if you're going to be on stage, a frock is required. You didn't find that after your Dancing Girl experience. No, that was um, until I played the Dame in a, a, a pantomime on the London Fringe in the. Late nineties, I was I played male roles in between those yeah. two. And in fact, interesting because being a dame really is being a bloke in a frock, as yeah. opposed to proper female impersonation, which I like to feel my uh, eight-year-old <laughs> Rosalind was. <laughs> Who was your favourite teacher? Um, well, I don't. 
I I feel I shouldn't give it. There were a lot of nice teachers. If I say a favourite, they might. I, mean, say, I was about to say they might hear this. They'll definitely they hear really this. Hear Everyone this will hear because this because we often get in touch. <laughs> with the people that people mention, to bring them back on and say, was that a true recollection? Did they not warn you of this? Did not? How did no, you explain this to you? No, I, oh, I didn't. No. So I've got to tell the truth. There's a touch of this is your life about yeah. this. And did you know, David Mitchell, <laughs> that in the adjacent room is that headmaster? Yes, indeed. He's brought a whole bag of sick for you. Anyway, uh, so what sort of subject? What, you don't need to name names, yeah. but it, what, is the, what was the subject? Why, why did you like a particular teacher? Well, I, I think my favourite subject was history. Yeah. That would, you know, that's, you wouldn't be surprised to hear that. That's, um, and I, I just think history is, it was well taught at, at the school, I think, but I just think it's the most interesting thing, full stop, because it's... Why it, do you think it's the most interesting thing? Well, then? I think all, the thing that makes humans different from other animals is that they want to explain things, I, I would say. I mean, I don't know, maybe... Well, so they can, maybe they can speak is a good start. Yes, yeah. But yes, yeah, so, so maybe the animals want to explain things as well, but they but just they don't given, know where to start. Gifted yeah. with speech. Um, sometimes I think killer whales want to explain things. They, I think the ones near Portugal want us to explain ourselves, definitely. Well, also, aren't whales amongst the most intelligent of all mammals? They're very much so. I think they are. Yeah. They? And oh. have you heard about the orcas, the killer whales, turning on shipping around the oh. uh, Straits of Gibraltar? Oh, oh, literally, yeah. absolutely Hitchcock style. They've had, they've had enough. They've started to attack yachts, uh, and no one knows why. Although actually, yes, we do. <laughs> we put them in Sea World. They're, they're <laughs> virtually extinct. The question is, why haven't they been doing this for hundreds of years? So, what does history give you? Um, I, it gives an explanation for what's going on, and I think that's you know, and people, pe- some people want to explain things scientifically. Some people want to explain things emotionally. I want to know what happened before this. So when uh, here we are in this hotel. I know you'd be able to answer these questions, but mm. I immediately want to know, when did this hotel start? What yeah. was there before this hotel? Exactly. Why are there grand a, hotels on Park Lane? It's a fascinating story, actually. This hotel, used, it's called Grosvenor House. It used to belong to the Duke of Westminster's family. And when they fell on slightly hard times in the 1920s, they sold this hotel, uh, they sold this yeah. building, the site, to what became Grosvenor House Hotel. But you're right, by very asking that question, you write, you get into the financial crisis of the 1920s, you get into aristocracy having problems, it opens all sorts of doors, is basically what you're saying to us. So this hotel is not part of the Grosvenor estate? It it is, the ground isn't any longer, no. So the rest of it, it's all leased. You can't get freehold in Mayfair because the Dukes of Westminster insist on remaining so rich. Yes. But here, they lost... Tiny little pocket of opportunity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, here you are, you love history as a little boy, but I imagine you're being taught traditional history. 1485, Richard III, all Yes, that. yeah. First couple of years, it's all drawings. You know, draw a Greek soldier, draw a Roman soldier, you know, that sort of thing. But then when we were about 10, we did a term about, uh, which was basically historiography. What is history? And so quite early on, the notion that there is an official version that just exists and that we can learn had been, uh, you know, had, had been shown to be untrue to, to we 10-year-olds. And I think that was a great way of starting because that's the main thing you need to know about history, isn't it? That we, 
you know, that we don't totally know what happened. All we have is whatever evidence remains, what people have written about it. Um, and people have imposed stories on that. And sometimes those stories are entirely fictional. And we have to slightly watch out for that. Uh, but also it's quite rare for a huge part of the past, as we know it, to, to have been entirely invented. Um, but, you know, King Arthur, entirely invented. I mean, it's, it seems unlikely because there's so much about him. But he didn't exist. He didn't exist? Not at all. This is King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table? Yeah. No, oh. you must know that, Giles. You're a very clever man. Well, no, but I've never really delved into that period. <laughs> what period would that be? The period he didn't exist? Any, you could pick any period. He's not in any of them. A long Look time everywhere. Ago. But tell me about <laughs> King Alfred existed. Him King Alfred existed, yes. Yeah. But was he didn't there, burn the cakes. But was there but a mythic exist. figure in somewhere like near to Wales where King Arthur might have existed? Well, yes, but obviously there were all sorts of figures near to Wales <laughs> then hanging around in the mud, and you can pick any of them and say that's what King Arthur's based on, except he's not called Arthur, he doesn't have a crown on, there are no knights, there's no round table, he has no furniture to speak of at all. So on, in what meaningful way is King Arthur based on him? So where does You Camelot? might as well say Harry Potter was based on a random boy in King's Cross Station some point in the early 90s. He's not a wizard, so he's not Harry Potter. <laughs> is there no such place as Camelot? No. I've been buying these lottery tickets under a misapprehension all these years. Oh, dear. Back at the prep school, who is your first firm friend, a proper friend, your best friend at prep school? Um, I, well, a very good friend of mine at prep school is a chap called Leo, who I'm still friends with. What was special about him? Why did you and he bond? I mean, he's like me. Uh, you know, he's, he's um, thoughtful and shy and uh, quite academic. Did you have a crush on anybody when you were at prep school? No, no. Was that not done at your prep school? No, I was, yes, no. <laughs> Little else <laughs> no, was you done may, I'm mind. feeling all shy, you're saying no, that. Okay. No, 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 I didn't have a... I think it's also okay. a generational thing. I think by the time, because you're, you know, 30 years younger than me, mm. uh, well, no, you're 25 years <laughs> younger than me, and I think in my generation, that sort of thing was par for the course. Whereas I think by the time you're, you come along, it wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to people, and also, if it was happening, it would be frowned upon. Do you think? So crushes were more acceptable in your generation than mine? I don't know. I'm asking the question. Well, I, I, don't, don't, yeah. I don't know your generation. All I'm sharing yeah. with you yeah. is that in my time at prep school, there was a lot of that going on. Right. And uh, it was like, it was, it was sort of, there was an expectation that there would be... Yes, a, a, yes. Yeah. I mean, if you were the pretty boy in the class, yeah. you'd be sort of fending them off. Yes. And, um, you know, it was... I wasn't the pretty boy in the class, yeah. sadly. But that wasn't... So when was the first time you felt but, um, that, those sorts of feelings? Oh, well, you, that was not at prep school. That would have been at uh, my next school. And what was your Ab next school? Abington, Abington School. Boys. And was that co-ed or just boys again? Just boys. Yeah. Um, and I don't... I mean, I, I think I had probably had some in my early teens. I don't think I ever thought I was gay but there were some boys I sort of particularly liked at that point. And then I started to get crushes on girls from the girls' school who used to come and help and be in the plays. That, that started when I was about 15. And I had a very powerful crush on a girl that was in a play with me to whom I, I, I don't think I ever spoke. I had a very small part in the play. She had a very big part in the play. She was very popular, very pretty, and I thought, she's amazing, I'll marry her. 
and I thought that there would be something in the strength of my own feelings that would make themselves evident to her without my needing to, you know, strike up a conversation. Well, David Mitchell, you think you're alone in this hotel. And in the adjacent room, I'm pleased to tell you, you haven't seen her. Sadly, we haven't managed that. But what, would it be a surprise? Would it, would you, have you ever seen her since? No. 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 It's not better since to keep the play. memory sweet. Yeah. yeah. Hello, Giles here, and I'm recording this segment at the JW Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel on London's Park Lane. I'm delighted to tell you they're the generous sponsors of this series of Rosebud. Regular Rosebud listeners will know that I spend a lot of time at the hotel, and when I'm here, I like to think of the many famous guests, more illustrious than me even, who've walked these halls before me. There's Walt Disney and his wife Lillian, who spent their honeymoon here in 1935. Or the greatest boxing champion of them all, Muhammad Ali, who stayed here in 1978. The Beatles played one of their earliest gigs in London at the Grosvenor House in 1963, and Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton are among the many Hollywood icons who have been guests at the hotel. When you book your stay at the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel, you'll be part of this rich tradition of famous hotel guests, and I'm sure the staff will treat you like a movie star. We're delighted that the J.W. Marriott Grosvenor House Hotel are supporting this series of Rosebud, do make sure you book with them next time you want a five-star experience in London Town. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What's the first time? Do you remember being frightened as a child? Um... Yes, yes, I was quite, I mean, I'm quite frightened of a lot of things. I don't remember being terrified very often, but I was very nervous and stressed about a lot of things. What um, sort of things? Well, at school, quite often, I was stressed. The first school I went to, I was stressed about lunch every day. And I was nervous of new experiences. And um, so I think I, I sort of had a timorous approach to life my parents have often said to me that they they were very nervous that something would happen to me because I was you know for eight years their only child and they you know they were new parents etc uh, but they realized they had miscalibrated their warnings that they what they wanted to do was keep me safe and what they do did is they kept me worried uh, and you know things like don't look at the sun or you'll go blind mm -hmm. is 
you know, if you if you, you start thinking, well, how can I avoid looking at the sights up in the sky? And you know, and you sort of say, I looked at it a bit just now. And it, does that mean is this is that tiny bit of dot that I can see when I blink? Is that the beginning of an encroaching blindness that I've doomed myself to? So I had a general worried, stressed approach to life. Oh. You were timorous but likable, yes. I don't know. I mean, you, do you think you were generally liked at school? I, I wasn't. Disliked. I don't think I was. Yeah, I don't think I was popular or unpopular. You were just. I was, yeah, I was never friendless, but I wasn't the, the sort of centre of attention. And when did you first begin to crystallise ambitions for yourself? Oh. Uh, In your head. And what were the first ones? Well, I loved, as a teenager, I loved debating. I, th- I think what, when I went to a larger school... I realised that I was relatively intelligent, but I wasn't like the cleverest person ever. <laughs> Which, when you're in a small school and you come top in the exams, you sort of think, maybe, mm. maybe this is literally, I'm in possession of the greatest brain humanity's ever known. It's an and annoying it, discovery. And, exactly. Mm. And so then I, then I started to focus on things I, I might be good at other than, you know, just <laughs> being the best at uh, academic examinations. And... Uh, then I realised I loved acting and I loved debating. And so I thought I, maybe I'd like to be a comedian, an actor or a prime minister. And those were the things I contemplated first in my teens. And there was a debating society at school? Yes. And you took part and you, you enjoyed it? Yes. And I think what I actually enjoyed doing is getting laughs, making uh-huh. speeches and... Uh, and I was no good at preparing or writing the speeches, but standing up and saying something off the cuff to try and make a point, I would, I would usually do it via getting a few laughs, I think. Um, so rather, as my wife says of me, Charles, there's been no career development since you were at school. Yes, this is the same case with you. You enjoyed the debating, <laughs> yeah. doing exactly that, and being in the school plays, and here you are, <laughs> all these years later, doing much the same. Uh, yes, I th- yes, I think so. I think uh, th- the thing I... Um, I, I think the thing I feel luckiest about is doing for a job something I've always found fun. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a, you know, a tremendous gift from fate to be able to make a living doing something you basically do for free. You went to university. Was going to Cambridge the most significant thing, do you think, that's happened in your life? Yes, and I'd applied the year before to Oxford and not got in. Oh. And that was, um, uh, you know, a huge blow to a, you know, someone who yeah. was, you know, a few years earlier had defined themselves entirely through academic success. Yeah. And I thought, oh, this is awful. What, what was the point of, do- of doing so well in Latin when I was 10 if I don't get into Oxford? Can you remember the interview? I, yeah, I did. I, t- yes. What, what went wrong? It was nothing went wrong. I think I did okay in the exams, but not brilliantly. And uh, and so I, what I needed in the interview was to say something special, and I didn't. I was either too nervous or too uninventive, or too, you know, I I vaguely remember talking about why I liked history um, in uh, let's say even less incisive terms than I have here. Uh, and I, um, yeah, I, I, looking back, I sort of think, yeah, they, they, they probably thought I was fine, but... Nothing no, special. Exactly. But a year later, you get into Cambridge. Yes, well, then I'd done my A-levels, so I, you know, I'd... I'd and you got good A-levels. I got good A-levels, and so I was, you know, I was a, a decent bet. 
And what college? Peterhouse. Peterhouse. Is that a very distinguished old college full of character and interest? It, it is the oldest college in Cambridge and was f- famously bad-tempered one when I was there. And there was, they, they used to say that at high table at Peterhouse you get the best food and the worst company in the university. And it was worn as a badge of pride by both the fellows and the kitchens. Um, and, uh, so they were cantankerous or they were rude to one another? What yeah. made it? That, that was the part of the, the joy. Yes, exactly. They would sort of, you know, you would, you would be served, <laughs> taken. To, I mean, it, it only happened to me once, but uh, not at high table. Obviously, I was an undergraduate, but I got invited to a, a dessert, which is, you know, essentially um, some fruit, nuts and booze after you've had your proper dinner. Uh, and I went to this dessert, and one of the fellows there, I, you know, I got a bit tipsy. Everyone did, and and then I've, I can't remember what it was, but I said something that this fellow decided uh, was very, very stupid, mm. and uh, and he just took the piss out of me and made everyone else laugh at me at my expense for what felt like an eternity, and. Um, you know, everyone was having a great time apart from me, and but it was, it was clearly he he was for him it was a a great sign of intellectual rigor and inventiveness and everything, and it was straightforward bullying. Yes, he humiliated you. Yes, he did. And you were nineteen or twenty. Yeah, and he was old enough to know better. But he clearly didn't. He, he certainly was. But you were happy at Cambridge. Yes, was, I had a lovely time. And why was it transformative? Um, what has it given you in your life? Well, I I wanted. To, I didn't know. You know how I didn't know how realistic an ambition it was to be an actor and comedian and that sort of thing. I, I felt as a sixth former that's something I wanted to do. Every adult I mentioned it to would smile indulgently and go, "It's you know great to have a hobby." But going to Cambridge suddenly you discover a a huge community of people and they all believe they can make a go of this uh, profession too and you get the freedom to put on lots of shows some of which work and some of which don't and this dream starts to feel possible was the heritage important in the sense of you know the john cleese david frost the predecessors who had cut their teeth at cambridge two or three generations before you were you conscious of that very conscious, and and I think that was that, that was a huge part of what made the dreaming feel less unrealistic. I mean, I think for me, being at university is not the academic side of it. Well, of course, that's part and parcel of it. But people come earnestly and say, "What subject do you think I should do?" And I said, "It's irrelevant. Do whatever subject you feel would be interesting to you. But what else are you going to do? What subject did you do? History. History. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I do. I, I'm." I love history, but I did less history in those three years. I was less into it. I read fewer history books than I think I've read in any three-year period subsequently. It was all about... I can't believe that mo- that motorbike isn't showing up on the cam on the. But um, we have said we're at Grosvenor House Hotel, oh, right, yes, um, <laughs> where there is a biking conference. Um, um, in fact, tonight there is a hairdressers' convention. There um, are thirteen hundred hairdressers who are going to be in the great room. You have performed in the Great Room, Absolutely, as have I. We know yeah. it well. The yeah. largest room in Europe. And in fact, <laughs> Is it the largest it's the room? largest room in Europe. And when it, you've got it on a roll, it's a very yeah. satisfying room to play in. Anyway, they've got the hairdressers yeah. tonight. But I was warned um, that the pavements were very crowded, consequently, because they all smoke. 
<laughs> they can't smoke in the building, so apparently there will be something like a thousand people standing on the pavement of Park Lane having a quick drag. So what is it about hairdressing? That, Isn't that, that interesting? They haven't kicked nicotine to the extent yeah. of... A, well, maybe it's like being a chef. It's quite intense. You know, because yeah. chefs do a lot of smoking. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes, chefs, obviously, they shout at each other and they say, you know, service and they wipe the coolie off the edge of the plate. Hairdressers, it's, come on, a snip, snip. Where are you going on oh your holidays? Oh, my God. What? When you next I don't believe that the stress of hairdressing is on the same level as in a professional kitchen. There, I've said it. Why does it cost £120 when a woman goes to get her hair done? Uh, is, is this a, 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 no, an economic it's, question it's or the step a, up for a joke? Nor is it a riddle. <laughs> I mean, the point is, it's obviously very skilled work. Yes. And it's quite risky. You might get the hair wrong. You're colouring people's hair. And, oh, I think it's... How risky is it? Have you ever had a haircut that went terribly wrong? Yes, I've had my ear nicked. Have you? I've had my ear nicked by scissors. Okay, I, I stand corrected. All of my haircuts have gone without incident, and, and I've, I've been blithely assuming it was a low-risk activity. But now I realise they're all hunched over their cigarettes, dealing with the stress. So what was your breakout moment at Cambridge? What was the part or the show? Well, I think it was because... Uh, it was when I got... When I, I turned up, I auditioned for everything, and the key thing I got into was the Footlights pantomime. And the Cambridge Footlights is the big comedy society... Uh, at Cambridge University and uh, uh, loads of prominent comedians have gone through that and basically as soon as I was I got quite a good part in that pantomime as a fresher turning up and broadly speaking I was then in I did 30 plus plays in three wow. years what so is the most memorable play you did from your time there I I think my favorite is I was in a production of what the butler saw Oh, the Joe Orton play. Yeah, playing Dr. I've never been sure whether he was supposed to... We pronounced it Dr. Rance. It might be supposed to be pronounced Dr. Rance. I'm not sure. Well, but given it's Joe Orton, it might be Rance, as in Rancid. Yes, yeah. I think we mispronounced it in our production. But, but that gives a little edge to it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but that was great fun, because that's, it's a sort of... It's a filthy farce, and it was really difficult to stage and get everything going at the right pace but very satisfying when it worked did you have time for girls with these 30 productions and all the uh, footlight stuff i had time for them but they didn't have time for me um i, I was not romantically successful at university oh uh, no, i had i had various crushes and the very occasional sort of um snog at a party but Can it was I, I did not forge happy young relationships there. Oh, because yeah. normally I ask people to describe their first kiss, and some people are able to do it in a charming terms, but you will not be able to do that. Is that where... Yes, no, I, I think nobody wants to hear that. Either. If you want to keep the download figures up... Yeah, we do. <laughs> uh, ...then you, you really don't want anyone saying that my description of an early kiss is anywhere in this earth. <laughs> OK, so when did you first fall in love? Well, I don't know. It's a difficult question. I had a lot of crushes on yeah. people. And as I said, the first huge crush I had was on this girl it's when I was 15. Uh, yeah. They were all unrequited for a long time. When, um, what, really what I'm asking is, when did you first say I love you and heard the words back? Uh, that was to uh, Victoria, who's now my wife. How interesting. Yeah, I've never said that. I didn't have a significant relationship um, before her. And when did you meet Victoria? 2007. So you were grown up by then. How old were you yeah. by then? Well, yeah. I mean, I was I was old. If that's what you mean. <laughs> yes. How interesting. Yeah. So no, I I didn't have. I mean, I had one sort of two month relationship with someone else, uh, and the odd sort of 
very, you know, one night stand kind of thing over the years, but nothing serious at all. And I didn't think, I thought that, you know, I'd probably be destined to be single, but I, I'm, it was very uh, clear to me when I met Victoria that this was different. And, and I thought, previously I thought I had as strong a feelings about people as, as, um, as, I, as I could, but it, it wasn't the same, so... It was actually very, it was a long wait, but then it was very easy. It was very clear. Where was that first encounter? At a party after a film premiere. The film? The film was called Stardust. I'd never been to a film premiere before, but I was invited by uh, uh, Jane Goldman and Jonathan Ross, who I met recently in my capacity now as being a comedian sometimes on TV. And it was all very exciting, and they invited me and... uh, and, you know, a few people took pictures of me and I saw the film and then we went to this party afterwards uh, full of, um, you know, um, exciting, trendy people, plus me. And uh, Victoria was there and I was introduced to her by David Baddiel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I've, 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 I mean, obviously I, I'm aware that I'm sort of, I'm aware I subsequently married her, so I would say this, but... I I felt it really felt like I fell in love with her then instantly. Yeah. And what 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 was she giving out? Was it her eyes, her appearance, her way of speaking, which is a bit unusual. Yes, I th- I think it was sort of all those things. Um, Did you know yeah. her father? Did you ever meet? No, her I never met her. I knew of her father, but I never met him. For um, people who don't know, her father was a writer called Alan Corrin, who, to people of my generation, was the comic writer of of our time, and indeed when I was and student at Oxford, he was very kind to me and invited me. I went to the punch table and sat oh, next right. to him at yeah. lunch. So when I was twenty twenty one, he was a kind of mentor mm. to me. So he was a very significant figure. Yes, um, I, I, I was aware of this hugely, and I was aware. And he, uh, you know, he died the same year Victoria and I met. I, I never. Oh, met so she him. was looking for a father figure. Well, and here came this <laughs> uh, middle aged young man, and she thought this will do. <laughs> And, oh, well, I can't speak for her motivations, but yes, I, it's very odd that I didn't meet him really because he was on the news quiz a lot, and I would have done lots of panel shows and subsequently oh. had done the news quiz many times, but I'd never done it up to that point. And obviously, you know, I'm very sad I never met him. But when I, yeah, when I met her, I felt totally different about her from anyone else, and uh, I think she she was keen on me early on but it took her a, a little bit longer to, conclu- to create, come to the same conclusion i to had. give in <laughs> yes <laughs> exactly to, to let go because once let, yeah. once you're persisting <laughs> persistence is what does he you know you've just got to persist 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 and eventually they give in well i was very persistent i you know in a, in a sort of low-key way yeah. i was and that's then, the way to yeah. do it yeah just keep keep and here you still are so how long yeah. have you been married now uh 11 years Thank you so much for listening to Rosebud. Thank you, too, for spreading the word about it. I'm going to spread the word now about another new podcast that I think might intrigue you. It's called The Queen's Reading Room Podcast. And it comes from The Queen's Reading Room, which is a kind of hub for people who love books and want to know more about books, set up originally by Queen Camilla. And this is a new weekly podcast really for people who love books and those who wished maybe they loved literature a little bit more. It's really to inspire you by the the, the bookish 
confessions of global literary heroes. So each week, uh, an actor, an author, a personality, somebody intriguing, people even who've appeared on Rosebud will invite the listener into their own personal reading room where they'll share with us the books they simply couldn't live without. So who does Sir Ian Rankin read when He's feeling a bit low. Who picks him up? Where does David Baddiel stash his fiction? Which masterpiece has Anne Patchett given up on again and again? And each week, too, Queen Camilla herself uh, pops up and reveals some of her own all-time favourite reads. So that's the Queen's Reading Room podcast. If you like Rosebud, I think you'll enjoy that, too. Go back to Cambridge and is your best friend at Cambridge, Robert Webb? That's You meet him there, isn't yes, it? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I think he probably is. I mean, I had a lot of close friends at university. M- most of the friends I hang out with now are from that time, but certainly none closer than Rob. Um, and we've just all had, an, I mean, my complete failure to have any kind of love life aside, we had a great time, all of us, just putting on show after show after show and not doing any academic work. When you leave university, yeah. uh, where do you get your breakout moment? Do, do you and Rob, are you a double act at university? Yes, we were double act at university. And you called, what did you call yourselves at university? Uh, we, um, Mitchell and Webb. Initially, Robert Webb and David Mitchell. And then I said, we've got to drop our first names. And I, and I, Rob was older than me, so he was the sort of senior figure when we started. And yet he's younger than you now. Isn't life yeah. strange? Yeah. <laughs> And um, uh, I, uh, but I, I, I convinced him by the time we left that it had to be alphabetical. Oh, clever! And yeah, Very that's good. that's it. And so you left having a little double act together. Mm. And how does one get work? Uh, well, yes, I mean, very good question. And a lot of people, you know, people ask, how do, I'm yeah. looking to get into comedy and yeah. how do you, how do you break in? And I sort of, I sort of say, well, I, I've only done it once. I'm not sure I know how to, it's like climbing into a very difficult building from the outside. I found one where I got hold of that drain pipe, but now it looks like it's falling off the wall. And do you feel there was a breakout moment? Was there a day when you suddenly thought, actually, we're, we're making it, this is happening. We're, we're becoming known and liked. There were two moments, I think. Firstly, in 1999, when we were, had been writing on Armstrong and Miller's Channel 4 sketch show and on the Jack Doherty show on Channel 5, that was the point at which we started to make a living. Mm. And we weren't having to do anything other than comedy stuff. And that, I think, is the greatest breakthrough. Um, so for, for all that being becoming well-known and being on TV ourselves has been brilliant the idea that this was actually a job and that we didn't have to give up on it and go and do something sensible um uh, that was the most exciting point and and being writing two days a week on the jack doherty show just some vague jokes to sprinkle in what was basically a chat show but going into an office in soho going out for lunch going to the pub in the evening that lifestyle and a lifestyle that we were able to pay for because we got 500 quid a week each for writing on that show well, that's a lot of and money that that's was considerably more money than we had the imagination to spend at 25 thousand a year and you're 26 yeah so and that that was good so that was great suddenly that that was amazing and then our our actual our breakthrough to becoming people uh, who are a bit well known was probably peep show yeah. but peep show took ages for people to uh to people to, for people to come to really it, it was on for 
nine series over a decade. And by the time it finished, it was sort of part of the furniture. But the first two or three series, you know, no one no one noticed that it was on, it felt like. TV, by the time we broke through onto it, wasn't what it had been 20 years earlier. Mm. It wasn't like, you're on TV, now everyone knows who you are. It was a slow process, which was actually probably a nicer way to become well-known than it would have been if we were sort of suddenly thrust into the limelight. Uh, has it ever been a bore being well-known? Can you remember the first time you were recognised in the street? Yes, yes, I, w- I was in Walthamstow, got off the tube in Walthamstow and someone recognised me for being on a very, very little viewed BBC Two sketch show called Bruiser and that was before Peep Show had happened and somebody came out, oh I saw you in that show, I thought that was very funny, they said to me, that that was great. I think broadly, sometimes it's a bore, I mean, uh, but I didn't, I, I got into this with my eyes open, I, I find the attention of strangers something that fills a void in my soul um i i you know i don't mind I don't, sometimes you don't want to be you get noticed and you don't want to be noticed but but broadly speaking i i i quite like it what's your worst professional experience that's very i remember yeah. mine and to give you time Go i'll on. tell you about it the Clockhouse hotel chiddock i was in my mid-20s like you thinking that cabaret was the way forward. Cabaret was still a thing in those days. Mm. And my agent took me down to the Clockhouse Hotel Chiddick and he said, I've got you three nights over the weekend. And uh, you're, you're, you're top of the bill, top of the bill. You're following Fred the Spoons. But Fred the Spoons is very popular. So good luck. So I, I went on. Fred the Spoons had been brilliant. Absolutely. He could do everything, including the national anthem on the Spoons. Uh, I, I went on and did my thing. They were having dinner. Yeah. And as I walked on, they began talking louder, the customers. Yeah. And they went, they just talked throughout my turn. And my act in those days used to end with me standing on my head and then doing a headstand. Yeah. And I would then walk off on my hands. Right. bowing with my feet to right. the audience. And this normally just does get a round of applause. Yeah. Because when somebody stands on their head for you, yeah. you do feel obliged to applaud. I walked, I, I came off in silence. In silence. Well, they were all chattering. They didn't yeah. know that I'd come on. They didn't know when I left. And <laughs> I was in despair. And I went into the bar where my agent yeah. was sitting at the far end of the bar. And he cut me. My agent cut me. He disowned me. Disowned me. Anyway, I wanted to give up. I went to my room and I cried. Uh, but on the third night, I kept going for the whole weekend. On the third night, I was in luck because I knew I'd found out it was Fred the Spoon's birthday. So I thought I'm going to burst on during his last number and get everyone to sing happy birthday to him. And that will silence everybody. And then I'll have got them because that's what I need to get them at the beginning. But better than that, Fred the Spoon's also played the Coca-Cola bottles. And after he'd done all his stuff on the spoons, he would take Coca-Cola bottles and play them, you know. Yeah. Anyway, one of them broke, and he had blood all over his hands. And the blood was spurting everywhere. So <laughs> Fred the Spoons was a disaster. Blood was spattering over the tables. Yeah. I came on, said, it's Fred's birthday. Let's all sing happy birthday. And the things were cleared away. And I went down a storm. And 
in the sort of post-traumatic stress of people having watched I, Fred the Spoon's yes. near-death experience. I was hysterical. The audience was in a state of hysteria. I came off, literally, blood on my hands yeah. as well. I came into the bar, still on my hands, and there was the agent with a bottle of champagne. Bastard. <laughs> so that was my worst ever moment, and that is now... 50 years ago, and I remember it quite vividly, as you can tell. Well, that <laughs> Has that given you time to remember but your it's worst yeah, but it's, it's, it's given me time to bitterly regret how poor my anecdote is going to be compared to that. <laughs> but also, did Fred the Spoon survive? Or Fred the Spoon did survive, yeah. and he was a very nice guy. He was a West Country entertainer, <laughs> confined to those parts. But what he did was very skillful. Have you ever seen a Spoons act? No. Basically, they take two spoons and they play it up and down their legs and on their elbows, yeah. and they, they can do whole tunes and things to it. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I'm. That's. I mean, it sounds a bit wearing, but <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure you know they didn't have uh, the Marvel universe then, did they? So, uh, I think my first. Ex- I'm, when I was a student, Footlights would occasionally get the odd in quotes professional gig, and we had to go to the. Coventry University Christmas Ball. We were being paid something like 300 quid between us to go and do some sketches while they had dinner. And we were following a conjurer and tried to do our, you know, undergraduate sketches into microphones while a lot of drunk students uh, who had probably been a a little bit resentful, uh, we were, you know, from a, you know, from... Cambridge and therefore what would have been perceived as a snootier university were there uh, in our RP accents doing our observational comedy or our, or worse still, our surreal comedy. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and we tried to start by doing a bit of a, a warm-up uh, where you get where we would get people in different parts of the room to shout things out in a way that we used at Cambridge to build energy in a theatre. This room did not need energy building because they were all quite drunk and quite cross. What I do remember is that they wouldn't stop shouting them out. So whatever we'd got them calling out at the beginning, they continued to call out through our attempts to do our silly little sketches and we were basically shouted off. But it was one of the things that makes me think, and you know, your experience of cabaret bears this out, that people try and put comedy into the wrong context. And comedy comedy is not as powerful as music. You can put music in the same room as food and music's got a chance. Comedy hasn't got a chance against food. Um, and I and I always think at, at, very, at balls at big events, trying to put a bit of comedy to sort of add that element to the, uh, to a kind of multi form of entertainment experience never works. You want people in a theatre in the dark where they have to listen, and ideally you want them well disposed to you in advance. You're so right. I remember doing an event at a hotel with Jimmy Tarbuck, and uh, I did my bit. It was okay. I came off and I said, they're not easy. He said, they're not, it's impossible. He said, I'm not going to do it. There's no point in doing this. It's too late in the evening. They're still eating. The waiters are walking around. It's, there's no point. I don't, I'm not going to go on and die. I've been doing this long enough to know it's not going to work. Mm-hmm. And if Jimmy Tarbuck says it's not going to work, having you know, <laughs> been doing it successfully for 60 years, it's not going to work. Though I did yeah. have an experience, not at this hotel, but at the Hilton further down the road, where it was a, what was it, a record industry event where I was on with Billy Connolly, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Billy Connolly went on 
to do his thing at the time that was set for him. I was supposed to go on first, but he was due on at a certain time. They were running late, so he didn't on. People weren't just throwing bread rolls at the stage. They were throwing them dunked in wine to give them greater velocity. <laughs> and then um, he tried to do a few minutes, and then they began putting coins inside the bread rolls. And a 50p coin inside a bread roll, squeezed with wine, hit Billy Connolly between uh, in his forehead. Yeah. And he walked off. And I, I was in the wings. And the agent, the management, was saying, Billy, no play, no pay. And he said, fuck you, and left. <laughs> and I thought, oh, no play, no pay. I went on and just let them throw the rolls at me. <laughs> Uh, it's a funny business, yeah. isn't it? Well, it's, you talk about, I've done various, uh, usually award ceremonies yeah. in the great room here. And, you know, it's always gone fine. Yeah. But, you know, they listen less and you give out yeah. half the awards and that means that half the room hasn't won. And they have their own conversations. They stop listening. And in the end, you're shouting into a microphone in a room full of hubbub. Do you remember Ronnie Corbett? Yes, absolutely. In this hotel, Ronnie Corbett was on stage at an award ceremony. And the fellow came up to get his award. And Ronnie was, I think, then sitting in his chair, you know, that he did his monologue from. Mm -hmm. And this fellow came up to speak to Ronnie and threw up all over Ronnie Corbett. <laughs> not, not my, maybe it was you from your prep school. Maybe it was you on the day outing. But can you imagine? Ronnie Corbett is sitting there, yeah. quite a small man, yeah. in a chair, trying to be funny. Yeah. And a member of the audience comes up, and meaning well, to greet yes. him and just throws up. And there he is, there in he front is. of 2,000 people Absolutely. in the great room, covered in vomit. One of the most popular and greatest entertainers of our time. <laughs> and they're throwing up over him. Yeah. Oh. So, I've seen you in so much since, since you were at university. And I've enjoyed it all. In fact, I think I was lucky enough to be in a Mitchell and Webb's sketch. Once. Yes, yeah. You've had this huge success yeah. with your new book, which... It was about the kings and queens of England. And yeah. I picked it up and was slightly alarmed. I thought, oh, well, how interesting. I think I know a bit about the yeah. kings and queens of England. I thought, well, let's start with George VI, the late queen's father. Oh, it doesn't be. George V. Oh, no, dear. Edward the. Oh, dear. Where's Queen Victoria? And it doesn't cover any of these people. What is your book about and it's, why? It's English kings. So you can't. I'm not British kings. I, I don't know anything about Scottish history. Uh, and so I wasn't going to pretend that that was in the book. So I'm do, uh, it's about the English kings from the beginning of English kingship when the Anglo Saxons arrived. You can't have English kings before then because. Is this King no Edgar the thing. first English king? Uh, Ethelred. Uh, not Ethelred, sorry. Athelstan is the first English king. Ethelred. Uh, he wasn't ready, actually. Well, he, no, he wasn't ready. Well, the one that wasn't ready was later, and there was an earlier Ethelred who was ready. Uh, he was Alfred's father, but he was not king of the whole of England. So, so it's that, about the kings of all of England? Of, of, of England, from the Anglo-Saxons to the last ruler of just England, which is Elizabeth I. And I stop oh. when we get a joint monarchy with Scotland. That's, you know, that's a different... Premise. Also, premise, different promise, prompt promise. This is the sleep deprivation is kicking in. That's a different <laughs> subject. Why, why, why stick with something beginning with P? The P words aren't working for me. Uh, so, yes, 1603 is where it ends. And, uh, and that means it's hopefully not totally superficial, but equally it's, it's not in too great a depth. It's a nice 400-page book. It's huge. It runs you through that whole subject in a way that I desperately hope is amusing. Well, you've, it's been acclaimed. 
people have acclaimed it, and they have said, it is, this is not 1066 and all that. This is proper history, real history, but it is so amusing and entertaining and unexpected. I think that trying to be funny about things is quite a good way of analysing them. And I think that's, that's what I hope comes across in the book, that all my life from the debating society onwards through the columns in The Observer, through the sketches I did on BBC Two, a lot of what I'm using jokes to do is to make some sort of point about what's ridiculous about some element in the world. And there's so much that's ridiculous about the Middle Ages uh, and the institution of kingship and what those kings did and the i mean just things like we take it as for granted that 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 it makes some sort of sense but it doesn't the relentless attempts by the kings of england to take over france and it's that's like a it's like a python trying to swallow a buffalo it's never gonna work why do they want to do it we don't even speak their language why why did they want to do it as english kings or maybe we did speak their language a, a lot of that time the english kings didn't speak english they spoke french so i suppose Ah. on that level it would have been convenient uh but it just dynastic ambition something to do there was you know no television no crosswords no one had a mobile phone let's take burgundy yeah exactly and 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 the and the carnage it caused and the and the failure that resulted was relentless and repetitive and take a step back and that's funny wouldn't have been funny at the time, but it's it's funny to look upon now. Um, so I, I I really enjoyed writing it and taking that kind of uh, comic analytical approach to. What now is your ultimate ambition? What do you want to be now? I just want to carry on being a comedian in Britain uh, for the rest of my career. I, I'm I'm I don't have any further ambitions. I want to stay where I am. And they say you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to, if you yeah. if you're not moving forward, you're moving backwards. I I don't. I don't want to move backwards, but I don't. I don't want to go to Hollywood. I don't want a film career. I I want to carry on doing comedy shows on British television uh, in a way that you know people think is good and <laughs> don't hate me, and that for that to continue to be my job. And are you still a timorous person? Or? Yes, absolutely. I'm, the only real risk I've taken in my life is with my profession, and also a marriage. That's a risky. Proposition, throwing your lot in with another human being. Yes, but it didn't feel like a risk. What it felt like is that to, to do otherwise would be a, you know, yeah. a disaster. So for you, it felt like coming home. Yeah. It was the, the thing you wanted to do. Mm. And what sort of a father are you going to be? Are you going to be one who offers advice? I, uh, I don't think so. I, do, I mean, I, I wouldn't refuse to turn my mind to a question posed by my daughters, but I don't see myself as a wise person. Um, I, I hope I'll be loving, kind and funny. That's, you know, that's someone who's easy to spend time with and, uh, you know, not, not judgmental. Loving, kind and funny. Who could ask for anything more? <laughs> it's a great privilege for me to speak to all these interesting people week after week. So my thanks there to David Mitchell. Before I go, it's time for some of your first memories. We've had an email from Jeanette Fuller in Western Australia. It's fantastic. Rosebud is listened to around the world. Anyway, this is what Jeanette tells us. One of my memories is from 1958. I was aged four and my mum was expecting a baby. She was in the bedroom and the midwife arrived with her black bag. I sat with my dad at the top of the stairs and waited. After a while, I was introduced to my baby brother. 
For years, I thought the baby must have been in the black bag. He wasn't there before the midwife arrived. She must have brought him with her. That's fantastic. And what a revelation, because I always thought that babies were brought uh, in a sort of papoose by a stork that flew to your house and landed on the roof. Now I've discovered they arrive in a black bag. Hmm, There you go. That's it for now. Until next time, goodbye. Rosebud is produced by Harriet Jane, artwork by Freya Betts, and music by Phil Leppard.